0: You're gonna pay us money for the subscription. It's like, oh, so you're doing a subscription service. No, you gotta rebuy all your games on top of that. And so it's like, oh, so I get to pay you for the privilege of paying you again at full price.
1: Welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of Navic, Anil Dasgupta, co-founder and CPO at First Light Games, sitting in his nice office with Blast Royale imagery, and Lars Dussay, co-founder of Level Up Labs and recent book author. Oh, The new book is Land is a Big Deal.
0: Thanks very much for the shout out. You can find that at landisabigdeal.com. Pre-order now comes out on October 15th.
1: Is it a physical book?
0: It is a physical book. It is an ebook, and it is an audio book. So, um, So for those of you in Europe where shipping costs kind of suck right now, you have two digital options to save some money until we figure out how to bring that down in about a month.
1: I just have to ask this. Is the name of the book a play on words? Because it's a big deal, because it's expensive. Also a big deal because it's important.
0: It is both of those things. Yes, that's very intentional and it's also... Kind of a nod to both Thomas Piketty and Karl Marx. They wrote books starting with Capital and Capital in the 21st century. And so I'm kind of positioning myself on the other side of land is something we should be thinking about more. Nice. So it's all cool. three of those things. I love puns. I love yeah. stacking them many layers deep and then <laughs> translating them is the localizers problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've worked on a game with puns. That so yeah, is quite hard. Well, although it's not quite a pun. Yeah, well, congratulations. That's amazing.
0: Thank you very much. Um, it's
1: been a lot, talked about a lot, your, um, your article about Lenin games. So, yeah, it'll be a really interesting read. Yeah, thanks. So, we're going to dive straight into the topics because there's a lot to get through that's interesting. So, Aaron will be talking about the rise of mega investors. And then supercell and their brutal killing of games. We have an empire theme going on here. We're also saying goodbye to Stadia, um, potentially looking into Netflix a little bit. We'll see how that conversation dives into, and also touching upon Apple's thirty percent cut of NFT sales, which we didn't get to the last episode. Mm. And there's a bit more information this week. yeah Aaron, yeah, so what's happening with the rise of the May investors?
2: Yeah, so lots of good topics this week, but I'll I'll start with um, some news around just, you know, where there's a lot of money being thrown around. So uh, I think on the podcast, maybe three months or so ago, um, it was discussed that Saudi Arabia is undergoing an enormous process of reinvesting its oil money, essentially, and like through its sovereign wealth fund. And part of this is reinvesting back into Saudi Arabia. A lot of it is global. Um, there are many different investment pillars, but games and esports is is one of them. And Savvy Games Group is the vehicle by which Saudi Arabia um, is tackling the games industry. And it's a you know a state-owned company, but it's already made a few moves. It acquired ESL Faceit to get into to esports. It launched Nine Six Six, which is a publishing division. Has a, you know a company called VOV, which does stuff with infrastructure. Has a small game studio business, games fund, um, et cetera. But the larger news of this past week is that Savvy is looking to invest $38 billion into the games industry, um, most of which is through just like M&A and buying minority holdings of companies. Um, but you know the, the sub-component of that, which is most interesting, is the $13 billion that is earmarked for acquiring a large publisher. And, you know, the immediate and correct reaction is, damn, that's a lot of money, Um, which, you know, for context, Savvy, you know, if they essentially build a $40 billion games business via acquisitions and investments, then the only gaming companies in the world that are larger than them are Tencent, Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, Nintendo netties. And I think that's it. And four-fifths of those companies do more than gaming. So this genuinely is a potentially a massive development if it actually happens. Um, of course, the devil is in the details of who it would acquire, who would say yes, whether regulators around the world get in the way or not. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the the second thing I just wanted to quickly mention before opening it up for conversation is that also Tencent is looking to to get more aggressive again with games m a, uh, potentially with a European bent, at least this is what is being reported. Uh, so I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, but you know still worth still worth mentioning in the context of lots of money flowing around um, in the game space. and obviously in the past decade or so, Tencent has been one of the top partners, acquirers, shareholders in the games industry. but right now its largest threat is its own home market, China, which, Via various new rules and approval processes, has led um, to much of the company's growth being stifled and its potential being stifled too. And when I looked a couple of weeks ago, the only the only one single game approval Tencent has received in over a year at this point was some educational health game that no one is going to play. So, <laughs> so the business definitely feels the the need to diversify its business again. So, really, bottom line, these are two. Notable entities with enormous financial backing that are going to try and build their global gaming empires and ecosystems up further, um, perhaps with a a renewed fervor. So I'm curious what what you all think about this. And so so maybe to to start, um, you know, what do you make of some of the largest gaming entities in the world being a result of acquisitions and not actually creations? Like what like what
0: impact? does that have on the industry? Uh, as a fun anecdote, I'd like to share that as a kind of sign of the times, a Chinese liquor company is now valued more than uh, Tencent as of like today. So some wow. people were wow. thinking that was kind of symbolic. Um, my my kind of take, I'm not sure if this is a contrarian take or not, is that I'm generally kind of always getting nervous when I see a lot of consolidation in the industry. Um, and this will tie in a little bit with my comments on Stadia today is that it's like, I'm not I'm not like universally against acquisitions or anything like that but I think when they get to a certain scale, I think as a company reaches a certain size um, you get less of the benefits of free market competition and you get more towards kind of a planned economy and um, planned economies are always less efficient than free market economies and so like I get worried about basically companies acquiring IPS to collect them like Pokemon and so, we see less um, efficient use of those than we would otherwise if things were at like kind of a little bit more right scaled. Um, And then I also worry a little bit about just um, way, way, way more vertical integration of things where it's not just that a bunch of IPs are being bought up and a lot of studios are being bought up, but you also see other properties um, such as platforms and distribution and things getting bought up to kind of Remove some of those competitive pressures, but basically, I, I, get, uh, I, I get, I get, I'm just generally kind of just nervous about massive consolidation, especially on unprecedented scales, right? Um, there's the Embracer Group is, I believe, tied into the Savvy Game somewhere. They've already locked up mm-hmm. like the entire board gaming industry. Like, I think they own like the vast majority of board game IPs at this point. I see you got a lot of board games there in the background, Aaron. I would not yep. be surprised if the majority of those are owned by <laughs> Asmodee, who is now owned by Embracer. Who is very aptly named? Anyway, I'll throw it back to y'all in case y'all want to push back on that.
1: I'm actually going to Essen Spiel uh, next. Well, this week, so I'll I'll let you know how the board game scene is is going. Um, my my personal thoughts about the consolidation in your question, Aaron. I personally am not too concerned about the increase in consolidation because I think it could also be with the times where. Just generally, as a society, we're changing in what we want. And I think before, when we first founded companies, especially, you know, with a past generation or so, it was with the intent of it's a family business. And you look at this in Ubisoft, you want a long running business that grows. And I think nowadays, even with a lot of new founders, their goal is that they don't want to build a company and stay there for 10 years, 10, 15, 20 years. They want to build a new company, grow it, and then exit. And so, potentially, the state of the consolidation will buy into that cycle that maybe new founders are expecting, and you'll still have the creativity, you'll still have the new games being developed. Um, And there's also a healthy environment in terms of venture uh, capital. So even perhaps building these new companies over and over again is becoming easier than it was before to take these risks.
2: Maybe. I... uh... I mean, there is a lot of venture money, and I think now probably a, a great time to be an entrepreneur. I guess I would, I would just say that not all consolidation is equal. Like when you see what like yeah. Sony or like Xbox is doing, like they really are building out like a methodically well-integrated ecosystem that that makes their their business model something like Game Pass, or, you know, with it or you know just that Xbox ecosystem with its multiple prongs um be better than it would be otherwise. The difference between that and something like savvy games group coming in or even what Tencent does in a lot of ways is that they're just buying things. Like they have more of the mindset of like being an investor that is just collecting assets than actually being company builders that care about innovation or you know pioneering new business models and you know just coming from the mindset of creating new value from scratch versus just, you know, having an overflowing amount of money that you just need to figure out what to do with. And I I don't know how big of an impact that will have on the games industry, but that's sort of the the thing that I'm I'm actually a bit more worried about. Like I actually like um, you know, what Xbox is up to. They're innovating perhaps as much as like almost anyone out there. And you know, having scale actually helps them in some ways be able to to create better solutions for consumers and be able to invest more effectively in r How are they innovating?
3: How are they innovating, if you don't mind me asking? Because I agree with your statement, but I'm not sure I'd agree with with Sony and Microsoft being innovative in terms I, of what they, they add to their portfolio.
2: I mean, Xbox, for sure. I mean, they're pioneering the whole subscription model, which I think is the mm-hmm. best value for gamers and console PC that we've seen in a really long time. Um, they're... They're, you know, I think and we'll talk about it more when we talk about Stadia, but they're pioneering, you know, cloud gaming in like an actually pretty effective way, I think. And not just from like a business model standpoint, but, you know, you can look at games like Flight Simulator that they own and see like how they're they're pushing forward, you know, technical innovations in some of their their games. They're investing in like accessibility tools to like expand gaming to more people, making games more cross play friendly, etc. So. Um, You know, there, there could be more innovative companies out there, um, but I actually think like they are still doing good and pushing forward in ways versus just collecting. Um, and, you know, from my investor days, there was always this concept that we referred to, especially, you know, because we're always trying to beat the money and versus like ETFs, which a lot of people... You know, it, you know, if you look at ETS, which are just collections of assets, it's big dumb money, and still big dumb money beats a lot of um, <laughs> people who try uh, to to pick and choose and like have unique strategies. But but at the end of the day, when you have overflowing amounts of money, sometimes it leads to worse deals. Sometimes it actually leads to a worse environment that actually is more counter to innovation. Um, Etc. And, you know, that's before even getting to like the potential geopolitical elements of of any of this. But anyways, yeah, long long winded way to say I don't think all consolidation is equal, but this one is actually different than a lot of what we've seen and perhaps not as value additive to gamers and innovation and the industry at large. But the other thing I'm curious if anyone has anything else to say about that. But the the other thing I just wanted to throw out is like they have 13 billion dollars. Like who makes sense to to go after? Like what? Like what
3: is like what should be their strategy here? Electronic Arts surely is the one that comes up every time we yeah. we talk about who are the quiet. I mean, I just want to push back on one thing though, just before we move on to that point. Okay, I I, I kind of thought that like you know the consolidation thing. You know, it's um. There's nothing really to be scared of in my opinion. I don't think innovation's really been rife in the games industry for a long time. Even examples that you mentioned there, sure, on the technical level, there's something to be said there, but it was noticeable that nothing was said on like the gameplay side. It's like games are just the same sort of genres and IPs over and over again. It's GTA 6 as leaked on the internet, it's another Call of Duty, it's another Assassin's Creed that we spoke about last time. I think that's kind of the irony. Like as a gamer, you might think, oh, I'm scared that if the industry becomes heavily consolidated it will lead to the lack of original IP and ideas and gaming. But I mean, you could argue we've been creatively bankrupt on the AAA scale for (laughs) about 10 or 15 years, certainly through the PS4 and 5 generation. So given that that's the case already, I don't really think it is too much of a problem. Maybe actually having this dumb money will make some big studios try a bigger bet because they can afford to lose one or two cases, which might be a good thing. Um, that's mm-hmm. my own personal stance. Eh? I, I do sort of see, obviously, the point from, from the tech point of view. Um, yeah, who? what does it really change if you've got some of these companies that own massive amounts of, of the gaming IP? I'm, I'm not sure it really changes too much. I mean, the people that I know that are with, like the, the Chinese companies, especially Tencent and NetEase, what's interesting is they're remarkably hands-off, so it allows the developers just to sort of get on with making their games, whereas... Sometimes I've seen in the past, the one that really comes to mind was um, Platinum Games, which was bought at one point by Microsoft. And they were like really fed up of being told how to make their own games. So when they kind of got out of it and, and worked with Sony was like, and Nintendo, they're like, oh, thank God we're back to <laughs> making games the way that we want. So actually, I think if you're controlled by a fund like that, again, as a developer, maybe a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, but I'll pass the question on. I've, I've uh, rambled with them for long enough. That's
2: true. Uh, and I just want to caveat by big, dumb money. I'm not saying like Savvy or Tencent is being dumb with their money. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, sometimes when you have overflowing money, you just have to do something with it. And so you're willing to pay more. Yeah. You're willing to just not, you know, only settle for the very best deals, et cetera. I mean, I'd be curious, like maybe we could get someone from Savvy on the podcast. So it would be an interesting conversation to think about how they're, you know building what is going to be a behemoth in the industry but anyways yeah any thoughts on what they're going to do with i mean they have 38 billion in general but 13 billion um set for a large publisher acquisition um and so yeah for context i think take 2 is like 18 billion ea is like 30 something billion um so they can't go for the biggest but they could go for some of the the more medium sized ones
0: yeah i mean i kind of wonder like are there any mobile publishers out there that have a market cap in that range? I don't have the figures in front of me. Or I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, because I wonder like how much growth there's really left in the AAA conventional console PC space versus these kind of emerging markets. I mean like Facebook made their big bet on the whole metaverse. We've been through a year of web3 stuff, you know, but like things like I mean i'd be surprised if roblox was affordable at that level but like we've we've seen you know the real new growth areas in games has kind of been something other like to anil's point of like well we've seen all the fifa 2020 billion and you know call of duty and stuff but like one of the biggest like surprises of the past like couple i mean i don't giving away my age here but like past bunch of years was like Battle Royale came out of nowhere and that gave us PUBG and then Fortnite, you know, and that came up from the mod then community before someone big like each like Epic was able to be like, well, we'll make one of those. Right. And like, so I would imagine that if I'm an investor and I want more than just like, okay, I'm going to buy this publisher for the dividends at a rate that's completely priced into today. Like I want to see some growth. I would want to kind of make, I mean, maybe, maybe this is to Aaron's, Aaron's point of like kind of the big dumb money thing is like, well, maybe I am just trying to make an ETF bet. But like, if if I, were, I was trying to put some chips on the table, I would look for something that like looked like it was growing and looked like it was, had the potential to like take over a new market or expand or something like that. And so I would, ex- I would be shocked if they only went for like your, like something like electronic arts and nothing else. I don't know what else they would get into, you know.
1: I don't I, I think the geopolitics of Saudi Arabia will also come into play especially if it's a big acquisition there's a lot of politics at the moment oh for sure um, I won't I won't go into it on the yeah. on the episode
2: um, yeah the the I last thing d- I'll say I think oh go ahead Maria sorry to cut you off
1: no no you you go ahead
2: Okay, I was just gonna say, like, yeah, they could try to acquire something that is more innovative and such. And the probably the reality is they'll they'll look to do lots and lots of deals instead of maybe just one one big one. And they're gonna make tons of minority investments as their their goal. Um, but I, yeah, I almost wonder if they should go for something like Embracer. And that's not to say I'm like the biggest Embracer fan from like an investor point of view. But <laughs> if you know their their way of operating is just gonna be deal making essentially. Might as well bring in like an infrastructure and team that already does that at a pretty effective effective level and provide more capital, maybe some some direction on the kinds of deals that, you know, they're interested in doing. And you know, all of a sudden you have, you know, a pretty effective team at doing that. And Embracer is maybe like a I think it's like a seven billion dollar US US dollar company today. So they could probably, you know, buy it eight, nine Billion or something, if they wanted to. I have no idea if anything like this is even remotely possible, but <laughs> that, that was the one that kind of came to my mind. It's like, yeah, you know, it might actually fit what they do. It's not exactly the most innovative, et cetera, but could maybe there's some kind of fit.
1: That's a really interesting viewpoint. Yeah. And the, the relationship is already there. Yeah. My. My main concern in terms of consolidation is reading through Tencent. I believe they're also looking to buy companies in the metaverse space, and that's when I become a bit concerned with the consolidation. It because at least the game, a game is an isolated experience. It can be a, a live game, but it's still isolated. There's a lot of options out there. Too many options to play. And when it comes to the metaverse, we're talking about deep worlds connection. There are not going to be that many out there. There's going to be ads. There's going to be regulation. Who who knows what the next step could be within that that industry and that segment? And I think seeing oh, well, all these like,
3: even more sense for like massive conglomerates like that to get their hands dirty, surely. Oh, it's
1: like definitely. As I'm I'm speaking as a consumer rather than yeah. it, it is savvy in terms of uh, an investment. Right. Yeah. Um, it's
0: like the platform play is the obvious one for better and for worse.
1: So I think this ties in nicely because, you know, Supercell's uh, majority stake is 10 cent owned. So yeah, we'll dive into a nails topic next.
3: Yeah. So actually, this is quite fresh. Came in just this morning, changed our running order of what we were going to talk about today. But Supercell killed yet another game. This is actually the 10th official game they've killed, although internally, I'm pretty sure that number is probably three X higher, if not more. Um, so... Let me run through the timeline and we can kind of talk about it because I think it's important to give context. So Supercell, before they were kind of big, famous and cool, they cancelled a game called Gunshine in 2011. Uh, Supercell actually originally started off trying to make cross-platform games. So this was a game that you could play on your PC and your iPad at the same time. And they realised that like the PC web browser version was awful and the mobile version was great and that they should pivot into that. And it turns out that was quite a good decision for them to make. Second game they made was a game called Pets versus Orcs, which was cancelled, which was kind of like the predecessor to Clash of Clans. If you look at it, you can kind of spiritually see it's quite similar. It didn't work out. And of course, Clash of Clans and Heyday came out and did pretty well. So then there's a few more years, but they, they cancelled a game called Battle Buddies, also in 2012. It was kind of like a sort of uh, isometric Team Fortress type game. They had a game called Spooky Pop, trying to get into the casual genre, which they they cancelled in 2014. A game called Smash Land which was uh, Monster Strike, Book of the West. That was cancelled in 2015. But the team behind that, I believe, went on to make Clash Royale, so not a bad sequel to follow that up with. Then they had like a few years of not cancelling anything, a whole four years of not cancelling anything or making any new games, by the sounds of it, because then the next one they cancelled was Rush Wars in 2019, which was a kind of sort of a uh, pretty derisive Clash of Clans, but horizontal rather than... It was all Clash Royale slash Clans, hard to describe. They went to Casual again with Heyday Pop in 2020, also cancelled. Clash Quest, that was cancelled in 2021. Clash Minis, also cancelled the same year. So now they're starting to get a bit more aggressive. And then finally, we've got Everdale, which uh, was cancelled this year. with was starting development last year. So That's 10 whole games. So there's a lot of things we can kind of talk about, which is why I think it's an interesting topic. So I'll cover some of them before sort of passing it off. So firstly, this game specifically was rather interesting in that it was what I would call the chillax genre. Um, I- I'd like to you know, pass Maria's credit for giving me that. So other sort of chillax games I would describe as kind of Stardew Valley, Power Wash Simulator. Animal Crossing, you know, games that put you into this sort of Zen like moment where maybe you're not even too concerned about what you're playing, but you're just enjoying, it. but very therapeutic. So very interesting idea. It was portrait too, um, but they've cancelled it. So it, is that a genre that is maybe not as big as we think, or is it? Um, because recently on the podcast we spoke about a company called NetSpeed Games who raised 12 million for their game Sunshine Days, which is also a very sort of chillaxy type game, uh sort of very Animal Crossing. So some people are definitely believers in it. The next thing that's kind of interesting to talk about is, I guess from a company standpoint, like it's interesting that Supercell are definitely brave enough to keep making games, but these games, when they kill them, a lot of the time their KPIs are pretty incredible. Like 99.9% of the studios in the world, I'm pretty sure would run with these games and would make money off them. And if they're not going to do it in the main studio because of like, you know, uh, opportunity cost. Why not farm them out to other studios? There's plenty of other people in the world that could take them on and make them remotely. Maybe they could do them in a sub-label, but they choose not to do this, which I find interesting. And that's despite the fact that many of the companies that they've invested in e.g. space day Trail Mix, but there's many others in the world. Some have succeeded, some haven't. None of them have yet been passed a game to kind of work on. Uh, and they could afford to do that, too. And, you know, that kind of leads me to sort of like, you know, is quality really worth killing for, which is like Supercell's sort of big mantra. And it seems like they've got a pretty good point here because the games that they do tend to be successful with are like mega behemoths, right? They're like 500 million a year minimum, oftentimes exceeding three to four billion. And they've done that multiple times. Perhaps they'd never be Clash of Clans, but I certainly wouldn't be unhappy with Clash Royale revenues or even Brawl Star revenues. It's incredibly impressive. And it kind of speaks about how we've seen this time and time again in the industry. Like I'm liking back to Bluehole when they released PUBG. They previously had a game that they thought was successful and they stated after PUBG came out, this has made us reconsider the hallmarks of what a successful game means <laughs> because the revenues are on a completely different level. So that's interesting. And then finally, just before I pass it off, I think what's really interesting about this game specifically, and this I think was found out in one of the previous Mavic podcasts, is that the game was actually originally launched under a subsidiary label called Osmium Interactive and was originally called Valleys and Villages before it transferred over to the Supercell So. You know, again, coming back to my point as to why they don't farm these games out, I've often thought that big devs, rather than taking the risk and seeing your IP tarnished perhaps, of an experimental game, you could always fund these games in secret and work with sub-labels. And then if the game starts taking off, then you bring it into the main strand and then you start putting money behind it. And what's interesting with this game is they did that. They announced it was like a supercell soft launch and then they still cancelled it. So something doesn't quite add up there. But curious, I thought this was going to be a strategy we might see a lot more of them and they might have a lot more games in development. So, wow, loads to unpack there. Whoever wants to take some of that?
0: I mean, just some dumb thoughts off the top of my head. I'm not like, it. I don't follow Supercell super closely. Um, But like, I wonder if there's kind of like, when they put out these games, like they've got their own internal promotion machine. They've got to be able to do cross promotion between their games. And I wonder if they're just like, Thinking of a brand dilution kind of thing, if they spread their audience over multiple games, like, yeah, we could release a new game, but like maybe our retention is so good on the games we've already got that we're not in a hurry to replace them. And like, if their audience is somewhat fungible, like, why dilute that with something that's not as strong? You know, maybe that eventually kind of just like weakens them over time. Now, that, that would just be like my dumb, uninformed hot take, just right off the cuff to kind of try and make sense of that strategy
3: they definitely possible but i think with super so you've got to remember that their games are like bonkers like at one point they had clash of clans had like a day 720 of 10 percent or something absolutely ridiculous like that like most stickiest games ever made so i think to be fair for them they often talk about if this isn't a game that players are going to play for 10 years and some of them have gone past the 10 year mark by the way right now um and make x amount of revenues then it's not worth their time because the talent they have in the studio is such that that's what they want to work on i
0: I think that's basically well maybe that's your answer right there is that they're like okay it is really hard even with like the best people in the world because there's some degree of luck involved to surface another diamond hit and you're only going to get one every five six years so the only way to get there is like so if we follow a game that's doing really well by any other standards but it's not the next clash of Clans. Throw it away because maintaining it is time we're not spending mining for the next Clash of Clans. And the goal is in the next 10 years to discover the next Clash of Clans, right? Like it seems like it's the opportunity cost of their own developers that they're doing there. I mean, that does like then raise the questions like, well, why not have a bunch of other developers like kind of mining away in the mines to like find yeah. stuff for- maybe they've gotten used to this one pattern. I mean, I'm not enough yeah. of an expert to really opine strongly, but those are like the initial questions I'm starting to ask.
1: If there's anyone that doesn't have dumb thoughts, it's you, Lawrence. So even a quick thought you have, (laughs) not a dumb thought. It's very insightful. Um, I think also, at least looking at the level of polish that Everdell had, it it doesn't mean that it's profitable. So that could also be a reason to not farm it out. I, I at least looked at the KPIs I could find on Sensor Tower, and they were not particularly impressive yeah so it, it could could also be that cost of production versus the the opportunity, but all of the other games that you mentioned that that were killed, um, I don't know if that's if that's a similar case, and yeah. I think Lars makes a really good point about um, protecting the cross promotion and if even if because supercell has a history of killing games that if it were another studio, they still pursue it. It could also be that potentially they don't want the competition out there because it would still be a good game. The Um, the, the
3: thing is, I guess, is that what I think is maybe a bit controversial to say of Supercell is that despite them being so successful, have they actually slightly underperformed in the sense that if you look at their heyday of sort of 2013 to 2016, when they had Clash of Clans, Boom Beach heyday, they were the number one mobile Mm -hmm. games publisher period. No one, no one came close. Since the rise of sort of Chinese studios and games in the last five to seven years, that is no longer the case. And even Clash of Clans is not the same sort of all-conquering beast that it was before. You know, the the battle royale games are overtaking it. So, if you were to judge them purely on a business point of view and they have these other games that they can potentially make revenues for, is it not something that they should be looking to optimize by finding a way to take these games? As well as I said, why not get other people to well, mine? So are, um, are you
0: suggesting yeah. they've overlearned their strategy and it, it, it works, but maybe it, it comes at the cost of some sort of flexibility and adaptation?
3: If, if I was the guy that, that was in charge of Supercell, i.e. Tencent, and I look down on them, I mean, I guess this is why I mentioned the previous thing, that Tencent are pretty hands-off, to be fair, but it's like for the amount that you've paid for them and what you're getting, you could clearly get more value out of that studio than what's been given. If they're making these kind of like good starters for 10, that could be then given to other teams to take on and improve over time. Um, but they choose not to do that and just, you know, using your own cost is fine, but like we've seen it happen many times, just like a few weeks ago, we talked about the the stumble guys where the game was bought, but the team wasn't. So that's even a real thing that you can do in the games industry where you just sell the game, not the team. So you can have your cake and eat it. You can continue to develop, using your all-star team and still make profit and revenues were somewhere else. And um, I just find it a bit curious that they haven't explored such models, given that it's quite popular throughout the industry. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, they definitely are victims of their own success. And I also think they've done, you know, a good do- a good job taking more shots, you know, both internally, yeah. but also like pretty effectively through their investments. I think so far um, they're doing a pretty good job, but yeah, uh, for this, yeah, maybe they could, do something to to save more games but i i don't know how many of them are really worth like saving too much like um i think like the last one they killed was like clash quest i think and i know that one had some pretty bad feedback just around like the core of the game didn't work Um, and if anything they probably kept that one alive too long um and with with everdale like you know obviously as maria said had a lot of polish to it but you know they they kind of with that specific game, we did a deconstruction of them um, at Novic Pro several months ago, and they they basically took like a unique approach, like made a bet on um, like time engaged not being the core like driver of the success of the game, and instead the number of check-ins. And I don't think they ever cracked the code on how to make that actually translate to money <laughs> effectively. Yeah. Um, and they might have just you know you know recognize that it was a failed experiment and that that model in and of itself isn't worth saving maybe they could have handed it to someone else who would completely like redone so much of the game but um yeah i don't know i don't know how much of these you probably could save probably more than zero and maybe they could try handing it to some of their platforms or the teams they've invested in or something but i don't know i i don't know how yeah. how often that really needs to be the case
1: that that ties into coming to terms that you can really only find the next disruption hit game maybe every five five years or so. And compared to other game studios, Supercell is trying something that's innovative. So like Everdell was different to the, the core, like the meta and the check-ins and the mechanics. They're exploring new things. You also mentioned that was the issue with Clash Quest. So they're probably embracing that they have to... Almost find the new the new subgenre uh, like clash. Clash is a thing now. There's so many games that that cl- try to clone the the clash the clash meta. Um, and another curious, I don't have, I don't know if this is related or not. Um, Tencent acquired a majority stake in 2019, and I know that Tencent. I don't know if they do this for all their studios, but I know that Tencent has uh, a green light process. So we see from 2019 that they kill a lot of games. It could potentially also be related to that. I'm not sure. But there's a timeline that links up.
3: I have to say I do still find them quite aspirational because I think you guys have put the nail on the head that still compared to many studios, they seem to take way more risk than others. I think if Supercell are kind of like the blizzard of mobile, or Blizzard doesn't make too many games too often taking punts, whereas I feel like Supercell has really tried. I think you know, 10 is a lot, I would say. And each of those 10 games was extremely well polished and pretty fun to play. So it wasn't like they didn't give those games like a good attempt to sort of stand out from the crowd. So I think that's good. And I think that is something to be admired. And I think it's also true across their portfolio, like spacing for the longest time hadn't really add anything to their, you know, their portfolio. Then bam, Beatstar comes out of nowhere, completely original. And now it's again, it's like a new disruptive game making waves. Um Love and Pies by Trail Mix, another bet that they made. Okay. It's in the merge genre, but they didn't really have a casual game in their portfolio. Well, now they've got a studio that does that. I know that they've backed like a racing studio in Australia. I think the guys that made real racing, there's like a few other ones. So they're definitely quite, um, yeah, they're, they're willing to take shots all over and, and, you know, see them through to execution. So I think that's really good. And I think I'm just, you know, just being overly critical from sort of. Sense but at the same time, from the business world, I could see the reason, like you know, why you may think that they could do better.
1: And going on from talking about killing games, we'll talk about <laughs> killing hardware and services. So yeah, goodbye Stadia. Yeah, let the the sad music commence. Yeah. So <laughs> last
0: last last cast before um, my connection dropped out, we were talking about rumors of Stadia being killed, but now it's official. Stadia has been killed. Um, I don't know if it's technically still like available for like the next couple of weeks or whatever, but like Google has either already shut it down or plans to shut it down as pretty much everybody predicted. Um, well, not everybody, at least not back in the beginning, but I've been calling this from the start and my thesis on Stadia kind of bears out this kind of question of when you have a large, well-resourced, powerful tech company come into a new space, specifically games. Right. Can they disrupt it or not? Can you just buy your way in with money and allegedly talent? Right. Or can you not? And we have at least one case where we know that that is possible. Right. Which is the iPhone is the is the canonical example of Steve Jobs just waltz on the stage, you know, just like puts his chips on the table and is like, I own the cell phone market now. And like people are like, how are you going to compete against Nokia and Blackberry, dude? You know, and then he's just like, watch me. Right. You know, and then it completely transforms the world. I mean, I, I shouldn't give credit to Steve Jobs. That's how his br- distortion field works. Like it's the whole Apple team. It's the whole ecosystem. But right, like mm-hmm. Apple just came in and they just like took it right. They ate everyone's lunch for breakfast. Um, and so with, why, why can't Google do that? And the answer is, well, why can't Google do that? Because they seem to not this seems to be a consistent problem for them. You know, and this ties into the whole acquisition thing, like our acquisitions actually efficient. Like a lot of these large lumbering tech companies have gotten into a place where they can't actually innovate anymore. Like all they can do is just like give a founder an exit and hope to indirectly incentivize them to create something new that way, right? And so to dig into the particulars of Stadia, just like right from the beginning, they were making all these like really bizarre moves, right? And I think the thing that symbolizes it most is that They had a business model that made no sense and their showcase games were fighting games, which is the last thing you should lead with for a cloud platform because the controversy over fighting games forever has been, does it have rollback netcode or not? You know, does it have extremely low latency and like just regular like games you're playing locally already have like too much latency to make fighting games, you you know, acceptable. And so the fact that you would, it's one of those, you don't know what you don't know kind of things. And so when an insight, it's like when you read a Wikipedia page about a topic you know a lot about, and you just see some really dumb stuff on there. You're like, okay, this was written by some idiot who doesn't know that, what's going on here. And so that was kind of the feeling I got with Stadia was it's like, it's not that you're not smart people. It's not that you're not well-resourced, but you're coming into foreign territory and you're going to eat some mushrooms that look just like the ones you have in England, except these are horribly poisonous and they're going to kill you, you know? And, um, and, and, that's kind of how I felt what, what happened, you know, you had like the, the talk about negative latency. Does everyone remember that? How they were going to have some like massive prediction on their servers. So like you would actually have like less latency. Um, and then, but, but like the real just nail in the coffin was the whole aspect of, okay you're going to pay us money for the subscription. It's like, oh, so you're doing a subscription service. No, you got to rebuy all your games on top of that. And so it's like, oh, so I get to pay you for the privilege of paying you again at full price. And I don't think Google probably necessarily, like I would be even more shocked if some studio executive thought this was a brilliant idea. I think it's more evidence of the weakness of their negotiating position that their partners were like, no, dude. Like Microsoft has enough clout that I'll agree to a Game Pass deal, but not you. Like I'm not, no, I'm not I'm not cannibalizing my sales for you. You're going to, your customers are going to pay full price for this. And by the way, you're going to subsidize me with millions of dollars to get me to be on your platform at all. And like stuff's come out now about like the figures Stadia has paid. And I knew a lot of friends who got Stadia deals and they were shoveling out money left and right because that is just how you get a new platform off the ground is because it's like, Even if it was like, even when Epic was doing that, they had to shove money around because it's like, okay, well, I'm going to do a lot of work to integrate with your platform and then it's going to die. And then I'm going to be left holding the bag. So you need to pay me to do this extra work. And then Stadia also made it so like you needed to make specific Stadia versions of the game. With Epic, it was like you could mostly take your Steam build and just reship it, you know? But here it's like you needed to like re-engineer your game, get it to run on their hardware you know, it was like they made every single mistake in the book. And then the consequence is what you expected from that. Um, the really interesting part to me was a lot of people early on was like, but Google, they're like Mr. Cloud. They own the cloud. Obviously, they're going to do this. And what people don't realize is that Google is not actually the leader in cloud, like Microsoft is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and Microsoft, by contrast, comes out with X Cloud, And it's like, hey, y'all. You wanna play your games on the go? Well, first of all, um Xbox Game Pass, y'all. So great value for your money. Oh, play on any device. Not just like like when it first started, it was like one specific device and you had to like go out and buy it. It was like a special new Chromecast or something. I forget. Like they've later expanded, but early on it was extremely restricted. You know, so you gotta buy the hardware, then you gotta buy the service, then you gotta buy your games. Whereas Xbox is like, hey, that device you've already got already plays Xcloud. Like you can play it on your phone, you can play it on your, your whatever. You know what I mean? And then additionally, it's like all the games you really want, like Stadia had a hard time doing content acquisition. You know, they didn't have very many exclusives. Um, And then additionally, like, um, I think if you've got a system, it's just a misunderstanding of understanding what your natural strengths are and your natural weaknesses are. You want to lean away from your weaknesses and lean into your strengths. Like people were like, oh, there'll always be latency. It's like, that's true. But for some games, it can be good enough. So lean into those games. Don't lean into the exact opposite ones like fighting games, which are the last thing that you'll be able to conquer. And so I feel like Microsoft just ate their lunch for breakfast, made all the right choices with cloud, showed how to actually make a really compelling cloud thing. And, and now they kind of own that market. And that's kind of my whole take on Stadia. And so any any, any thoughts on, on that whole subject?
2: Yeah, I think that was well said. I mean, I think it was doomed to fail from the beginning just because... It was a mismatch for Google. Um, I mean, there were a lot of reasons why it failed, but you know, it it was you know such a Google product effort in the sense that they put all the attention on doing something cool and new and groundbreaking with tech, and then they you know completely underthink the business model and the like the real job to be done for consumers in a lot of ways. And you see this, you know, you saw it with like Google in and of itself, like they just made cool tech and then we're fortunate that advertising was a natural fit for that. And hence, you know, the cash machine flowed same, same with YouTube, et cetera. Uh, But with this, they can't just repeat that same, that same process to where just make cool tech and then slap advertising on it and, and it'll work. Um, And so, yeah, really underthinking the business model here, like it, Yeah, attaching, like, the legacy way of buying games to, like, a new distribution method made no sense from the beginning. And, you know, they tried to change, but not effectively. Um, And the other thing here is just, like, I think they they just made, like, a fundamentally bad assumption about this being a standalone product, which is that, you know, console gamers... You know, people who want to play console games but not play them on consoles (laughs) is tiny, right? Like, 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 people who like really want to play these games will like they all buy the hardware to play them. And the ones who don't, it's very small. No one's going to like rebuy games or pay for extra subscriptions, right? And so that kind of ties into your point with Xbox. Like, you know, they're not pushing X Cloud as just like this standalone product, it's part of a broader ecosystem where it makes sense. And even if it really takes 10 years for, for cloud to get to the point where it actually is mainstream in some way, like it's okay because it's not the main thing they're pushing. They can work and iterate on it on the side. So yeah, between that, the, the content failures. And also I just think like it was very clear early on that (laughs) this product might not survive. So why would you as a consumer, Mm -hmm. like go all in on a platform that, that you question whether it'll even exist and is it even as good as the other ones? It doesn't even have the, the best library. And if anything, like if this were at another company, I bet it would have been shut down, you know, two years earlier. But just because, you know, it's Google with a lot of cash, it lasted longer. And now we're finally getting to the point where these kinds of companies are realizing, hey, you know, actually, with when it comes to hiring, we kind of need to slow our roll and think about getting more efficient when it comes to all the other bets we're making. Hey, it needs to like get more streamlined and like focusing on what we're best at, etc. And Stadia is just a, a casualty of that so yeah those are those are my my thoughts
1: and we've seen meta and snap do this and i think we're going to keep company seeing big tech tech companies um keep on it and i talking about the i think what you said about the consumers is true for the same same. it's same for the game developers you you don't believe in the product and you know that it's going to be canceled at some point so why develop a game that then you have to port or then you have to handle refunds. And that's exactly what the developers that did games on Stadia are having to, to deal with right now. Um, IO Interactive, Bungie are the two, and I think there's been more, just announcing <laughs> that they didn't know until the announcement came came through that Stadia was going to shut down, and now they're trying to handle, you know, someone bought something on Stadia, how can you still bring it onto the the game on another platform? So it comes with costs of going live on um, an unproven product, let's put it that way.
3: So, so Lars, I think the really interesting thing about this is like your point about how an existing sort of powerhouse that's proven themselves in one other area is trying to conquer new territory. So just before we came on, this kind of led into us talking about Netflix. So I, I, I want to get your take on that. So yeah, as you said, Apple's kind of like the only proven one, Netflix was something we're going to talk about. They have just decided to start their own game studio after buying a few, so maybe you want to speak about that a little bit. That'd be an yeah, interesting. one to, I, would, uh, segue
0: into. I would love to. And what's, what's really interesting is that, um, you know, I think it proves that like large, well-resourced companies with a lot of talent are not immortal, invincible Olympian gods. Right. They're just <laughs> people like sometimes like I've worked for some of these big companies. Right. And then like, I'll get assigned on a project and I've like looked up to them my whole life. And then it's like, okay. Um, well, Lars, we hired you to work on this thing. How are we going to do? I'm like, Oh crap. I have to solve the problem. I'm just like a guy. I'm just like some schlub, right? And so like, that's how it is. I like all these big companies. It's like, it's just some person. Yeah, probably like a brilliant person or whatever. But like you prick them, they bleed just like you or me. You know what I mean? And and so the deal is like in these boardrooms, like we imagine that there's just these like, just like unfathomably like perfect people who can just do anything because these companies seem so powerful. At the end of the day, it's just like people like you and me you know smart people talented people but like just just going to work trying to get stuff done and they can make mistakes and um, especially when it's outside of their company's core dna right the hardest thing for a company to do is to change its stripes and like learn something that it's not good at that's aaron's whole thesis with like google trying to do something that doesn't monetize their advertising what like how does that even work so like let's bring it back to netflix right so there is some precedent here of some companies getting into games and actually being, like, kind of successful for a while, you know? And the way this is traditionally done is you just become a publisher and you play it safe, right? Uh, Annapurna, I think, was, like, movies first. And then, like, I mean, there was that time where um, Adult Swim got into, like, publishing games for a while. I think that went away eventually. But, like, they were pretty successful for a while. And um, Netflix, I think, is kind of taking that model at first on a larger scale. Like, what you what everyone expected was, like, Every Netflix device was going to become some weird kind of cloud streaming console for bizarre choose-your-own-adventure games and some other kind of like big-brained galaxy-brain take of like how is Netflix going to make the Netflix of games, you know? Um, and then it turns out that they're going like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna publish mobile games, and everyone's just like, oh, oh okay, <laughs> you know. Um, I don't think that's their only plan. I think they probably got other stuff up their sleeve, but they're they're playing it pretty safe to start with, you know. If you want to think about it, like what is Netflix's, you know, natural strength and actual weakness, right? And they want to lean into their strength and away from their weakness. So like right now, their gaming division is non-integrated to their core experience. It's kind of just like Netflix, the company now has another vertical that's over there that doesn't interact with like, it's not like you log in through your Netflix subscription, or maybe I haven't paid super attention, but like, I assume they're just like standalone games, right?
1: Um, if you open I your see. Netflix app on yeah. mobile, if you scroll down enough, you see uh, a carousel of the games.
0: I'd be interested but, to see how they got that past Apple. That that's cool. Um, that well, when that.
1: you tap on the game, it takes you to the app store, I see. and then you download the game. I see. Yeah, but it, it doesn't even have a. It doesn't even have a sub tab in the right, app right. to see all of the games listed. You have to scroll through the. Some of the games in Maria,
3: you can't play them unless you enter your Netflix credentials. Oh, yeah. okay. So I ra- think you have
1: to you so have to there. In, okay, and they yeah, even have uh, they they implemented a username recently as well okay. so that your username doesn't have to be the same as your personal account so this could also be a prediction that we might see multiplayer okay. games.
0: So they are they are doing some of that synergy, yeah. So I haven't I have super studied Netflix, but um yeah, so that's interesting, but at the same time it's like it's not like you're playing Netflix games on your Roku box right? You know what I mean? Or on your Chromecast. Your, or
1: your what? Sorry?
0: You're not playing your Netflix published games on your Roku box or your Chromecast, right?
1: Okay, I don't know what a Ro- Roku box is. It's just like boxes. a little set
0: top box that like you connect to your TV and like watch Netflix oh, or whatever on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Roku. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Maybe so that's I think, old fashioned now. Go ahead. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think what Netflix is doing is pretty interesting. We don't need to rehash it all from the beginning because we've done that in other episodes, but um just to play like and i honestly don't know how it'll play out but just to like lay some parallel um i mean netflix in the past it just like shipped dvds it was a shipping company it wasn't even really a content company and i think a lot of the patterns that we're seeing today with games is actually with netflix is pretty similar to what we saw how they enter streaming in the past and so for example you know they start small uh you know they start with you know you know, basic, simple infrastructure and build out from there. They start licensing some content, grow it out from there. They they start getting exclusives, but they don't make them. Then they start, you know, they launch like their first like internal studio to make their own exclusive um, content. And then, you know, zoom forward today. And the majority of the content that is on Netflix is exclusively um, like produced and made by Netflix. And I think... Um, And it took, you know, like 10, 15 years to get to that point. And I think with games, we'll probably see something similar. It's less clear, like, if again, like the job to be done, like, for consumers, like, do they really want games on Netflix? I think that's like a fundamental question. But um, seeing them start, again, really small, basic games, make like small, like, acquisitions, hiring to start, you know, getting their their, their library, uh, started doing some licensing, which they announced like even the past couple of weeks, tilting point is making, um, like three games exclusively for Netflix. Ubisoft is making three games exclusively for Netflix. Um, but you know, pairing that with like, okay, they just announced that they're now building their own first studio, similar to when they got their first, you know, like, like video, like TV show studio in the past. And it's kind of following some of those same parallels where they're, you know, kind of following this method, it wouldn't surprise me, you know, in 5, 10 years, the majority of content that's on Netflix um, is, you know, made by Netflix. And, you know, it'll be a little different from the free-to-play business model. It'll tie into a broader subscription, et cetera. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's more or less what I think is going on. And I, I don't think it actually is as clashing with the, like, Netflix business model. It's just more content under the same subscription as much as it is some of these other um businesses that try to force fit
0: things that don't fit the same subscription I think Though, you're I right wrong. I think you're right the fly in the ointment is apple because um Netflix is kind of allowed like like Netflix had that big struggle where they weren't even allowed to like let you subscribe to Netflix like they had to be like hey you can subscribe to Netflix somehow we're not allowed to tell you on the app but if you figure it out then you could do yeah. it because they didn't want to like give that to Apple. That was a big part of like Epic brought that up in the lawsuit, right? And so like, um, there, you, you know, Roblox is kind of been grandfathered in. Roblox is allowed to ship experiences, you know, through this one master app, but I would be shocked if Apple would allow anyone else through that gate. And so like, you know, we've got the clunky interface right now with Netflix if they would be allowed to just like, here's a carousel of games, you can play them all through your Netflix account, stuff like that, or whatever, you know, and they roll that into the subscription service or, or whatever, you know, or you pay from separately, but there's perks. If you use login with your Netflix account, that would be one thing. But like, I feel like Apple kind of stands in the way as a toll keeper to kind of prevent that from happening. And, um, so I wonder how that affects the dynamic because, um, That is, I think, is a a kind of unappreciated part of this, of trying to build new platform businesses. Like, I think what's interesting about Netflix, like leaning into their strengths and weaknesses, I should have established this up front, their weakness is that they've kind of saturated the subscriber mark. You know, they've like kind of, you know, like we've had subscriptions go down for the first time in a while. There's all these other competing subscription services now finally. And they're now like really needing to juice retention and value per, and and revenue per customer for the first time and try and figure out how that goes. And they flag that their top competitors, they don't really think of as Hulu, but as like Fortnite, right? You know? And so I think that's why they're moving into games. But I think kind of Apple structurally stands in the way of them being able to do that, at least on iPhone with their kind of mobile first kind of publishing strategy. And I wonder how they solve for that, you know?
2: Yeah. And just being able to play on multiple devices and you know be more cross-platform in that way that's like what made netflix so great you can watch anything anywhere at any time and with games you can't do exactly that but yeah so yeah definitely still issues to sort out but it's it's interesting nonetheless not as bad of a fit as many think but
0: um yeah not not perfect either right to kind of round out the whole stadia block i will like throw in i know you guys have covered meta before on a previous cast so i won't go into huge detail but i think meta kind of meta's pivot now, and now that they're losing all this money kind of rhymes a little bit with stadia i won't i'm i'm not confident enough to be like it is just stadia 2.0 but like it's really clear that that was driven by mark zuckerberg's just real frustration that he didn't own a hardware platform and really trying to wish cast one into existence that he could own and um I think, you know, from what I've seen, like the actual successful metaverses are very clear right now. It's Roblox, it's Fortnite, it's Minecraft, it's VR chat, it's Rec Room. Those five, and and Second Life. Second Life is still doing pretty good. Um, Hundreds of thousands of like daily active users are still there. So those six are the actual successful metaverses. And I don't think Horizon, you know, I mean, maybe you can keep shoveling money at it, but now like with them like laying off and like having to do hiring freezes at, Facebook meta, you know, I'm a little skeptical of that. And I think it's a similar case of like someone coming in with just raw power. It's like, I've got John Carmack. I've got the best hardware. Surely I can do that. And it's like, well, even with that, those tailwinds, you're still facing the fact that you're Mark Zuckerberg and you don't understand what you're doing is kind of my take on that. And that's how it kind of rhymes with Stadia and kind of gives me hope, even in the face of consolidation to kind of tie back to earlier things, that you can still see innovation like springing up from these other pockets of people who do understand what they're doing provided they can get funding.
1: And I think there's a major difference between Netflix and and Google, because if you look at Google and Meta, they have multiple verticals in their business. There's already such a degree of separation between leadership and all of the decisions being made and the strategies. But if we look at Netflix, they have a core business, and they're taking a sidestep into another another vertical that's still integrated. So there's less degree of separation and they can still run a tighter boat when compared to a Google trying to get into games. And I think, yeah, like you said, we're seeing all of the small steps, all of the small experiments between making the next big decision. And personally, I've been having a lot of fun playing Netflix games. They're good. I just
0: think and it's good. And they so have f- a
1: good they have a good marketing strategy. They talk about making mobile games without pesky ads and well, predatory in that purchases. So again, they're trying to disrupt the market
0: mm-hmm.
1: as they did with the streaming of, of video content.
0: My last thought on that is just, I think it's so hilarious that the Netflix of games as a concept is very different. Like what everyone expects of that is very different than what Netflix actually created when they went into kind of games. It's like, it took, it took a different form than I think a lot mm-hmm. of people expected of like, you know, and I think that's kind of interesting.
1: And we'll um, tail off with a, a quick topic about the Apple's 30% cut from in-app purchases. So going on from how, how did Netflix ex- escape the 30%? Um, <laughs> why are NFTs not going to escape? So very quick summary. Um, there was a report from a website called The Information and not a, an official Apple announcement that Apple is now allowing NFTs to be bought in-app with the standard commission fee of the 30 percent um the other caveat is that the transactions have to be done in us dollars and not cryptocurrencies so like you can't use your eth in your wallet to buy this nft um again there hasn't been any formal confirmation or uh, from from apple but there's been so many people that are in the web3 industry or um that I've made comments using very definitive statements about how you can make NFT purchases. So I'm assuming it's just true, even though Apple hasn't form- formally confirmed it. Um, so to be published on the App Store, you cannot outlink your players to go make purchases elsewhere. It's like you were saying with the, with the Netflix or other, <laughs> other apps. You have, is somewhere you can go and buy these things. You have to go and figure it out. So that high friction, poor UX. We don't have to go through that. Um, And, of course, the main sentiment from the Web3 community from blockchain games is very negative because if you look at other marketplaces like OpenSea, it's, I think, a 2.5% of their, if it's the own company's marketplace, could be, I don't know, closer to 7%, 10%. That's still way less than the 30% that Apple is going to to take. Although... um, I believe there was someone was it from limit break the 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 founder actually said, "You know what, I can just access such a huge market. I'm willing to pay the thirty percent. There's some division of of opinion, so I just want to throw it out there what What do you think what what is your take? Do you think it's fair? Do you think this should be expected or if it will change?
3: I think it was it's to be expected hundred yeah. percent, isn't it, but I think um It will probably come down to be honest if you i personally expect even the regular app store cut to come down over time given all the heat and competition they've been getting you know anti-competition laws but just touching on this subject specifically i think right now for us in web3 having it being more accessible is still the huge win there's like so few people in the world that understand how to make a crypto purchase that smoothing out that onboarding flow is by far the bigger win it's like once everyone's used to doing it on a daily basis then you fight the next battle. That's my personal stance on it. But of course, it is against everything that sort of Web3 and, and blockchain stands for, which is why there's sort of such a big hullabaloo about it, which is also understandable.
0: Yeah, I would agree kind of with Anil there. Like anyone who didn't see this coming was, you know, like, <laughs> of course, of course, this was what Apple was going to do. I mean, it's interesting that they allow it at all, but it's like that this was what was holding it up is exactly what I would expect, right? They want their tax, they do not want a decentralized payment system that they don't control. You know, like this is exactly what they fought with Epic about, you know, except now it's cryptocurrency. Right. And I think it does like I think there's a lot of crypto companies that will welcome this because it's like, well, before it was not allowed at all. So we couldn't ship mobile apps at all. Now we can, but we have to pay a toll. Okay, that's less worse. It's still bad, but it's less worse. So, um. But my perspective on it is that there's a couple of other things here. First of all, it it really does undermine a lot of Web3 thesis. It basically converts your Web3 apps to Web2 apps, you know? So it's like a a big thesis of Web3 is like, we're going to have games onboard people onto these Web3 protocols. They're going to get MetaMask accounts. They're going to get addresses. It's like really now it's like they're paying in currency in USD for an NFT. They're really like, I guess maybe they set up a wallet you know, um, but I feel like that, that onboarding is very diluted, right? So like an app, all, all of your iPhone users are going to be like way, way less web three native than all your other users. And then second, you're attaching a huge deadweight cost to your economy. Right? So like if buying these NFTs, like if that, that 30% margin is going to blow out an entire category of apps that, um, that basically can't afford that friction for their economies to work. Um, and I mean, I'm sure other people will be excited about it. I'm sure we'll see an Axie Infinity app on mobile soon, and they'll they'll try and write the ship and um, other things like that. Um, I do wonder, like, what kind of regulatory scrutiny this brings down on Apple, which might be why we haven't seen an official announcement yet. But just other people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. talking about it behind the scenes. Um, like, I think there, there was recently um, we we didn't talk about Kim Kardashian getting nailed um, for for promoting Ethereum Max. The SEC, I think, just like find her for that. Um, So so, so, like we're starting to see like a lot of regulatory movement now. So I don't know how that's going to all cash out, especially in the game space and like these new payment apps. I do think this totally informs like Tim Sweeney and the Epic lawsuit. Like, I don't know how Tim personally feels about crypto, but I'm sure he would, in this case, take the side of the Web3 purveyors of being like, however you feel about crypto. It's like that you should be able to on an open platform, pay for things how you want. You know. He, of
1: course, tweeted a controversial statement. He said, now Apple is killing all NFT app businesses it can't tax credit. Uh, crushing another nascent technology yeah, that yeah. could rival its grotesquely overpriced and not payment service. Yeah, so he went all out. I um, mean, riding you, this wave.
0: And you know how skeptical I am of NFT stuff in general, but like, I mean, I kind of agree with with him. There is, it's like, Apple's not doing this for because they're so nobly anti crypto. <laughs> they're doing this to pr- protect their 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 payment monopoly. It, it's just completely transparent. Everyone knows what's happening here.
1: Yeah, and. If you were leading Apple, would you not do the same? Look at how much an NFT sells for, or a base entry price into a game is oh, I would, a 100 if, USD if NFT. I,
0: if I was leading Apple, yeah, maybe i do the same, because you have, but then I would be a bad person, <laughs> you know, is, is my kind of take on it. Is I, I feel like it's one of these cases where it's the right choice for Apple, but it makes the entire ecosystem worse, right? They're engaging in rent-seeking that comes from their ownership of a platform, And, um, you know, our legal structure allows these sort of things. And so they're not doing anything illegal, but I think it's, I think it's worse for the economy that they, they, there's all sorts of creativity and innovation and investment that could happen. That's not happening because of the deadweight loss of their private tax, essentially.
2: Yeah. It's definitely Mm -hmm. a a mixed result. Like like obviously like Apple is throwing its weight around to like undermine an entire growing industry in some way but also at the same time like you know having clarity around rules is great for like accelerating mass adoption and so i think mm-hmm. we'll see that it'll just happen more on on Apple's terms and i think we might see you know my my prediction is like it'll actually like NFT adoption through games will probably actually occur more in, like, a free-to-play <laughs> kind of model, um, where um, which I guess, like, Limit Break, what they're trying to do there, like, it is free-to-play. Like, you hand out NFTs, at least, like, initial NFTs, some of them for free, and, like, you know, 30% of mm-hmm. zero is, is zero. But then, you know, maybe you get people deeper into your ecosystem and there are other mm-hmm. ways to monetize whales. I don't think this is enough um, rules. Like, having a rule on just purchasing, like you know it's a start but what makes nfts valuable is it's not a one time purchase it's something that you own that you can sell you can trade is valuable on a marketplace it might lead to to airdrops it might lead to all you know just the the surface area of what's possible once you have an nft what you can do with it or what you'll receive is much wider and i don't know how equipped apple is to continue making more rules around all of that like what does this mean for Um, you know marketplaces like teams will still have to have some type of like you know web app or website or something to facilitate deeper engagement with nfts i would guess and maybe there actually is a way to sort of yeah are you going to be allowed to
0: are you going to be allowed to advertise that are you going to be allowed to advertise that in app right I don't know. We'll
1: we'll have to see. There's there's all these movements in certain countries to regulate where Apple has to allow other payment methods or being able to at least outlink. So I think we'll continue to see that bring benefits here.
0: Um I wonder if we'll see Binance like stuff where you have like basically like in Korea you can have a iPhone free for all of NFTs, you know, like, yeah. like kinda like how Binance is available everywhere but the US and stuff like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And If we look at non-blockchain games, we've been thriving now with this 30% cut, so it doesn't mean it's going to affect the thriving potential of blockchain games on mobile. it it won't well the
3: the difference there marie is there's an additional cut on top of that right so if you as a a, developer of the game already take a five percent take on an nft transaction and now apple's taking an additional cut on top of that then it does kill your nascent business as per tim sweeney's tweet so that's why people are against it um good point yeah yeah so that that's that that's the kill that's why i can see it being some more of a middle ground where I think you know if it, the total was something like ten percent, probably that's still okay, acceptable. I've seen some marketplaces operate with as high as a, a take as that, but anything above that is going to be tough. But we'll see. There are it, it's going to be an interesting space to follow. Yeah, mm-hmm. the
2: one other thing about this that I kind of like—I I, I don't love all of it—but um, m- kind of making NFTs sales happen in fiat currency, I think, is also you know, going to do a better job of accelerating adoption in that lens too, instead of like only accepting Ethereum or only Mm -hmm. accepting USDC. And, you know, whereas the the thinking in the past was that you would have to get onboarded into crypto to then get onboarded into NFTs. Instead, like with this, like the logic might flip. It's a lot easier to get onboarded into NFTs. And then once you do something like with it, you get onboarded more into the, you know, crypto ecosystem at large. through then tokens after after that
0: or whatever the case, which is an interesting flip. But curious to see it, what that means. It also undermines the business model of requiring purchasing all the NFTs in your ecosystem with your token to generate demand for your token.
2: Yeah, yeah, and in, in some ways. Um, so yeah, I have no idea how all of that's going to shake out. So yeah, this this is really just the beginning mm-hmm. <laughs> of of how these rules are going to shape up. It's not the best start. And so, yeah, I'm not exactly optimistic that Apple will be super friendly and if it does roll out more rules on giving flexibility to users, but also to what extent can they really control a lot of how these, you know, economies are designed that are off app or whatever the case, like the genie's out of the bottle. So I'm just curious.
3: Well, they do you think there's, that. A, there's a world where actually making purchases outside of an app that work in the app becomes the norm to such an extent mm-hmm. that people don't do it? Now, you know, that might seem a bit crazy, but as kind of like a mobile developer OG, I remember that in year one, people tried twin sticks on the phone. And everyone was like, this is the stupidest idea we've ever had. You need a D-pad to play action games on the phone. You've got to make like village games and simulation games. And it's never going to happen. But then what happened is that as like an entire new audience sort of grew up and their first experience was playing on mobile as their first console they owned, twin sticks on mobile became a thing. Sure, it was implemented a bit better and and people got used to it. So I wonder if it's a thing of like right now, it's far more convenient just to tap the button and be your purchase there. But if after a while, people just won't really care about that and you won't see such a massive split between people spending in-app and out
0: I think that'll be a... Apple has, it. I think that's not just a shift in norms. I think that's a battle because I think Apple explicitly does not want that future and does everything in their power, including intentionally crippling the Safari browser engine, which all browsers on iOS are required to use to make sure that doesn't happen. Right? Like they, that that is their nightmare scenario because it allows you to end run their app store. That's what the entire Epic lawsuit is about. I think, um, it is objectively a worse experience for the customer to have to like know to go somewhere else to like do all your transactions. And the fact that there's energy to do that already shows this kind of market frustration of not being allowed to do that in app at prices that would make these economies viable. Um, I think you could eventually get a significant m- number of people going off app to do that. I think you would just need like the most genius UX and app design people in the world to mm-hmm. get that to happen in sufficient numbers. With crypto, there's kind of a really established norm of these like these separate standalone marketplaces. But like I guarantee you Apple will fight tooth and nail to like not allow people to advertise that. But can somebody all remind me if in the lawsuit wasn't there? What, what was the term they called it for like not allowing people to. I forget there was a specific term of art for like non-referral or something that you weren't allowed to do and i think like epic fought them on that and might have even gotten a ruling in their favor of like you were allowed Mm -hmm. you were allowed to like redirect people like like allowed to like let them know at all that there's another place they can go to do this even if you Mm -hmm. don't have a buy button right there on the app and like apple was very against that and i believe epic at least in a preliminary ruling got that and of course it has been appealed or whatever um but i think that's the battleground this gets fought over
1: that's, that's what Netflix has. You can cancel your subscription by the if you use their app, it opens a, an in-app browser. Essentially, you can cancel your subscription, but it has a little snippet of text that says, "If you want to change your payment details or your subscription, you have to go to Netflix.com." And I think at least that will become more widespread in regulation.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: But we'll we'll have to see. I think there, as long I think people will pay for ease of uh, of use of comfort so even if there's a browser where it's cheaper if you have to take more steps people will still want an option to buy it in app and pay a higher price because you can cancel the subscription in your settings and so on so we'll we'll have to see um that was a a very packed episode we're going to have to wrap up yeah lots of good stuff yeah good topics Well, if you want to add anything to the discussion, you can find us on the Navic Discord. If you want to read more about the Everdell deconstruction, there's a promo code in the show notes to sign up to Navic Pro. And yeah, it was so lovely to have you all here. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week.